Oh man. So how's everybody doing in podcasting land? No. Just sitting here fighting with my dog who wants to get up and run around like an idiot. So watching Return of the Jedi, so if you hear that in the background and notice long pauses, that's what's happening in my world right now. And it's strange how You know, the prequels changed some things in the in the original three. Yeah, in the original three Star Wars movies, they don't really mention Qui-Gon Jinn. Uh, I just heard Obi-Wan take credit for finding Anakin Skywalker when really it was Qui-Gon. Obi-Wan's trying to explain to Luke how, from a certain perspective, Darth Vader did kill Anakin Skywalker because once he gave in to the dark side, the man who was once Anakin Skywalker ceased to exist and Darth Vader took over. So he did, Darth Vader did kill Anakin from a certain perspective. The funny thing about all this is, I've learned over the obsession I have with Star Wars in the last several months or years, since the, what are known as the sequels have come out, the seven, eight, nine movies with uh, Ray and this new group of people. Um, these, uh, the sequels change things in the originals and in the uh, prequels, you know. So it's kind of crazy. I think George Lucas should have been a lot more involved in the sequels than what Disney let him be. And I think uh, Luke Skywalker should have been featured a lot more. The first one, I understood he, you know, he didn't come out till the end, uh, episode seven. He was in there for about two seconds, and then um, episode eight, he was in the whole movie, but he was disgruntled, and 
you know, complaining, but, uh, the, uh, in number nine, they could have had him, uh, one plan I heard was he would torment Kylo Ren from, you know, the nether regions of the force or however they say it the other side from as a forced ghost so but uh it's just pretty cool um watching these old movies that i grew up on i saw return of the jedi at the theater and then I, over time on VHS and TV movies and whatever, watched, you know, the first two. And I mean, I've watched, then I went to the theaters and watched uh, when George Lucas remastered the original three back in the 90s with new uh, CGI and whatever computer technology they had, I went and watched them again. And, uh, and then the only prequel I watched at the theater was, um, Revenge of the Sith. The, the last of the prequels, whichever episode three was. And, uh, it was amazing that, you know, the fight scene between Obi-Wan and Anakin was great. You saw how Anakin got, you know, screwed up and became about 75% machine instead of, you know, the, uh, you know, striking, handsome, tough young man that Anakin Skywalker was. And, uh, funny thing is George Lucas originally wanted Leonardo DiCaprio to play that part, but I think Hayden Christensen did a great job. Uh, you know, everybody nitpicks everything about Star Wars. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a science fiction movie and it's a, a movie about hope and family and all these things. It's not meant to be a serious, you know, as serious as some Star Wars fans take it. But uh, the one thing everybody remembers, if they don't remember anything else from Star Wars, is Carrie Fisher in that uh, bikini <laughs> in Jabba the Hutt's, uh, I don't know what you would call it, dingy dungeony cave that he lived in uh, but every it's become known as the slave girl leia costume and is popular with uh some attractive and some not so attractive young ladies at comic con conventions and uh halloween and so on and so forth so that 
that's interesting but uh so we're getting ready to watch the battle of endor which introduced us to the famous ewoks ewoks are awesome i met an ewok at a comic con and uh it was i mean it was much uh you know, it had to be a bigger outfit for the person to fit in. And I don't know how tall the person was, maybe five foot. Uh, but the Ewok costume is kind of an ugly thing compared to how cute and cuddly the Ewoks look in the movie. Um, um, I think some Ewoks were played by midgets and some were played by kids. But they were all pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know how the hell Han Solo can understand what Chewie is saying. How he can understand what Chewbacca says. <laughs> oh, man. This, uh... Vader and Luke are communicating through the Force, but Luke doesn't quite realize it. So... inability to sleep. I've found uh, a neat article. Not, it's not neat, but interesting or whatever you want to call it about the Ahmad Arbery case. Um, Investigators say the man who filmed Arbery's killing was more than a witness. Uh, from the beginning, William Bryan, also known as Roddy, has portrayed himself as a concerned citizen, one drawn by commotion when he pulled out his phone and filmed the fatal encounter between two of his white neighbors and Ahmad Arbery. 
On Friday, authorities said Mr. Bryan had been more than a bystander and had more than the final 30 seconds of Arbery's life in charging and filmed more than the final 30 seconds. In charging him, officials say Mr. Bryan, who joined the pursuit of Mr. Arbery and filmed the confrontation in late February from a short distance, had contributing, contributed to his death by attempting to confine and detain Arbery with his vehicle. Brian 50 was also charged with criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. If we believe he was if we believe he was a witness, we wouldn't have arrested him. Director of the Georgia Bureau of Investigations told reporters at a news conference Friday. I have to turn the surround sound off. Now they're getting into special effects. When the chilling video was posted online more than two months after Arbery was killed on February 23rd, it provoked It provoked widespread outrage until until that point, local activists had struggled to draw broader national attention to the case under the shadow of the coronavirus pandemic. Video released also the videos released also instigated sweeping investigations into the killing. The Glen County Police Department's handling of the case and eventually murder charges against three men, including Mr. Bryan, who was arrested Thursday evening. Kevin Goff, Bryan's lawyer, said in a statement Friday, Mr. Bryan had cooperated with law enforcement since the day of the shooting. It feels like only one thing has changed, changed regarding the case are changing political winds, but we will not rush to judgment. Charges against Mr. Bryan reflect the stark evolution of the case. Just weeks ago, the prevailing argument by prosecutors was Arbery's death was, Arbery's death was not a criminal offense and that none of the three men should be held criminally and responsible. Um, this isn't in the article that I'm reading right now, but it's important to note that the Georgia Bureau of Investigations is uh, also investigating the original prosecuting attorneys, the local prosecutors who defended the uh, three alleged murderers. Uh, the pro when I say the prosecutors defended them, what I mean is they uh, said that, you know, he, Amarberry, or Ahmad Arbery acted aggressive. He attacked uh, the one cracker, uh, Travis, and tried to take his shotgun away from him, which 
gave Travis the right to shoot him. Uh, and I always thought there was more to this video that, I mean, than the 30 seconds you saw. I mean, it, it's pretty obvious there had to have been more to this. Um, the release of, back to the article, the release of the, of the video set off a series of dominoes. GBI, that's Georgia Bureau of Investigations, okay, was called to lead the investigation. Mr. Bryan's neighbors, Greg Arbery, or Greg McMichael, 64, retired law enforcement officer, and his son Travis, 34, were charged with murder and aggravated assault. The, and the case was assigned to a fourth prosecutor, the district attorney in Cobb County in the metropolitan Atlanta area. <clears throat> We're going to make sure we find justice in this case, Juliette Holmes, the district attorney, said in a news conference Friday. We know that we have a broken family and a broken community down in Brunswick. After, Mr. After Mc, the McMichaels were arrested, Arbery's family and activists zeroed in on Brian, urging authorities, authorities to charge him. Lawyers for Arbery's family argued Brian took part in the case and corralled Mr. Arbery. In a statement after Mr. Brian's arrest, his lawyer said the family was relieved his involvement in the murder of Mr. Arbery was obvious to us. Mr. Arbery was killed on a Sunday afternoon near Brunswick as he was running through Satilla Shores, a neighborhood carved from the marshland along the East Georgia coast. He was jogging along a tree-lined street when he encountered the McMichaels Stop, stop, they shouted at him, according to police. The police report, we want to talk to you. In the video, Mr. Arbery and Travis McMichael are seen tussling over McMichael's shotgun as McMichael shoots him three times. Mr. Arbery spins around, tries to run, and falls to the pavement. George E. Barnhill, the prosecutor, signed to the case after the first district district attorney recused himself because Gregory McMichael had worked in his office, wrote he did not believe Mr. Arbery's killing was a crime. The McMichaels said they had been legally carrying their weapons and believed they were going after a burglary suspect. He also cited the video which had not been had not yet been shared publicly said it showed Travis McMichael acting in self-defense. In late April, Mr. Barnhill stepped away from the case, also citing a conflict. His son works at the Glen County District Attorney's Office, who had recused himself and had also worked with Gregory McMichael. The case moved to another Georgia District Attorney, Tom Durden, who said on May 5th that he would take the case to a grand jury. He also summoned the GBI 
and about two days later, the McMichaels were arrested. Lawyers for the McMichaels said their clients maintained their innocence and, had, and met, said many questions loomed over the fatal confrontation between them and Mr. Arbery. Right now, we are starting at the end. We know the ending. What we don't know is the beginning. The arrest of Mr. Bryan, who is being held in Glen County Jail on Friday, came as calls for prosecutors to intensify or intensified in recent days. Those pushing for his arrest said Bryan was considered a participant long before the video was shared online. He had been mentioned in the police report of the killing which was based largely on Glynn County police officers interviewing Gregory McMichael. In a letter, Mr. Barnhill wrote to police, but Mr. Bryan, who is known by his nickname Roddy, has contended that he planned that... has contended that he played an instrumental role in shining light on Mr. Arbery's death. There wasn't a tape, and we wouldn't know what happened, he said in an interview with CNN. In a statement this week, Mr. Bryan's lawyer said his client, associ client's association with the McMichaels has been eventually, or essentially, limited to being neighbors. He added Mr. Bryan and his fiancée lost their jobs because of the case and were in hiding after receiving threats. There are a few things more difficult for a criminal defense lawyer than, than put blind faith in a prosecutor does not know, Mr. Goff said in his statement, which he emailed to reporters late Monday. But when, but he went on, Roddy and I trust District Attorney Joyette Holmes and the GBI Director Vic. Reynolds will, in the fullness of time, do the right thing. By Wednesday, Mrs. Holmes and Mr. Reynolds decided that events, investigators established, or investigators had assembled enough evidence to establish probable cause and bring Mr. Bryan into custody. So, more or less, this is the guy that filmed the shooting and now they're saying he was involved with the McMichaels. Um, because he was involved in the murder somehow. It's, it's inter just interesting. You can't, you know, tell what... What's going on, you know? I mean, why was he following this guy around? And furthermore, what, uh, you know, when did he start following Ahmaud Arbery? When did he know what was happening? Um... 
you know, it, uh, they're contending that he was not, the police are now contending that he was not just an innocent bystander that was, uh, you know, saw a commotion and started filming. He'd been, you know, evidently called upon by the McMichaels in some fashion to go out and record this uh, to help follow Arbery around and, you know, film what was going on. Um, I mean, it's very sad. I, I mean... You know, they had to end this way. Um, you know, and there's a whole other side to things that, you know, Ahmaud Arbery was not jogging for exercise. He was, you know, walking down the street. We see on surveillance cameras. We see him go into a home, but from the outside, the home looked fully you know, renovated, and turns out it was still being constructed on the inside. Nothing had ever been reported stolen from the home. Um, you know, there was, there were some reports, or in the news, it was said that, you know, some fishing equipment had been taken from uh, the homeowner's boat, but he didn't know when and where and how the fishing equipment was stolen. He just know, knew that somewhere, you know, between his uh, house in this suburb and his other home, which he lives in, and the lake he was at fishing, the fishing equipment came up missing out of his boat. Um, and then, um, you know, Arbery, it goes into the house twice at two different entry points I saw from one surveillance camera, and then he, you know, runs out of the garage, so, I mean, there's a whole other side, but the dude didn't steal anything. And these dumb crackers didn't have any, you know, evidence that he was stealing or had stolen anything. You know, it, to me, it's a case of if you see something suspicious or you report it to the police and let them deal with it. You know, now there's other things, people saying, that, well, the police told you know, somebody to contact the McMichaels, you know, should they see somebody in their uh, home that was under construction and that these McMichaels would, you know, then contact the police or do the citizen's arrest, but there's no evidence of that that I've seen. You basically have two dumb white guys trying to play cop and obviously there was prejudice involved because it was a black man and that's that's shitty that's sad that that's the time and age that we live in you know um that's all i can 
all I can say about that. Um, I think they're both, at least the two McMichaels are going to jail for some time uh, on something. Uh, also, uh, I think uh, this Brian guy is going to end up turning state's evidence against them. That's, I think that's the play that the prosecutors are making. I don't understand. I mean, well, moving on from that, um, some celebrities and sort of celebrities, you know, they've contracted this COVID-19 coronavirus uh, and it makes headlines and I don't understand why. But uh, Patrick Ewing, those of you that watched basketball in the 1980s, uh, he's, he played ball in, at Georgetown. And man, the Georgetown and the Big East Conference, there were some ballers back in the day. Um, I'm lighting a cigar. Hang on. I mean, I was just little, of course, when Patrick Ewan. This is kind of funny. From my basketball days back in uh back in my youth. Um <laughs> I'm skipping back through uh Return of the Jedi so I can watch it from kind of the beginning. Alright, this is where it starts getting good. Um <laughs> But, uh, okay, so, like, in the 90s when the Bulls and the Knicks were, like, big, big rivals. And it was all the Knicks could ever muster to try and beat the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls. And I, they never did. It was the year that Michael was off playing basketball uh, that the Knicks finally beat the Bulls in seven games. And Scotty Pippen almost carried the Bulls past the Knicks, but just didn't quite have what he what he um I won't say I wouldn't say Scotty didn't have it. Scotty became the leader of that Bulls team. But uh, he didn't have the supporting cast he needed. He, uh, I don't know if Horace was still there. He might have been, or he might have already been traded at that point, or free agented. Um, but whatever. Uh, the, the announcer at the Madison Square Garden in New York... Whenever Patrick Ewing would score a bucket, uh, the announcer would say, Patrick Ewing, Patrick Ewing. 
<laughs> just kind of uh, pronouncing his name with that New York accent. Um, I used to be able to do a. I used to be able to do a better impression of it, but it was like Patrick Ewan. I just kind of thought of that. Well, Patrick Ewan uh, has been diagnosed with the coronavirus. Um, says Georgetown head coach, evidently he's back coaching his old alma mater. Uh, Georgetown head coach and NBA Hall of Famer Patrick Ewan tested positive for COVID-19, he announced on Twitter on Friday. Let's see. 57-year-old under is under care and isolated in a local hospital. Uh, he said, you know, the, this virus is serious and should not be taken lightly. We are, we, no, no one's taking it lightly. I want to encourage everyone to stay safe and take care of yourselves and loved ones now more than ever. I want to thank the healthcare workers and everyone on the front lines. I'll be fine. We will all get through this. Well, that's nice of Patrick Ewing to put that out there. And then it just goes on into bullshit about how many people have died and how many this and that. Um, here's another sad NBA story. Uh, another one from the 90s. Uh, and he was a, a great player too. Uh, Jerry Sloan passed away. Uh in the last couple days. Uh, he was the coach of the Utah Jazz in the 1990s. Uh, took them to two NBA Finals where they lost to the Chicago Bulls. But Carl Malone and John Stockton were one of the great duos of all time. Uh, he, Jerry Sloan was 78 years old. Uh... So, looks like Jerry had been sick for a while. Uh, this is not a coronavirus death, by the way. Uh, it. Let's see here. He bet he had Parkinson's. Okay, and oh man, he had he had battled Parkinson's disease and Louis body dementia, which didn't feel which didn't feel like a proper ending for Sloan. His public appearances dwindled over the last few years. Um, yeah, Jerry Sloan was a, a true class act of basketball in the 90s, uh, and he played for the Chicago Bulls, um, I would think, in the 1970s. Uh, and he it was pretty cool. You know, he was just one of those real gentlemen of the game. He wasn't flashy or cocky or flamboyant. And that was really reflected in the way 
the Utah Jazz played, um, you know, they, they were a great team. They were known for their pick and roll with uh, Stockton and Malone. You know, sometimes, you know, Carl Malone would set a pick and Stockton would pop a jump shot off. And other times they would fake the pick and Malone would roll to the basket and get a you know easy alley-oop dunk or something like that. Um, and some other interesting news. If anybody's in the market for a 56,000 square foot mansion, Michael Jordan has been trying to sell his 56,000 square foot mansion in Chicago for the last eight years. Um... And it's worth every penny of the $29 million asking price. Well, it was originally listed for $29 million. He's uh, agreed to take um, half of that. So $14.5 million. And you can own Michael Jordan's Chicago home. I would buy this thing if I ever, if I had 15 or $29 million to throw away and rent it, rent it out to like, you know, crazy Bulls fans and just have crazy, you know, Chicago Bulls parties with my basketball buddies that we used to run up and down the basketball court with. But this house would be so high maintenance to take care of. Uh, and it's so customized. It has a full-sized NBA basketball court. Not there's not it's not an arena. It's just the basketball court, but it's you know to the NBA dimensions. It has a swimming pool with a real grass island in the middle. And a little bridge that goes to the island. So if you don't want to swim, you can sit on this tiny island in the middle of your swimming pool. Uh, it's got like so many freaking rooms. It's got 19 bathrooms and 9 bedrooms. And like part of it is like a square house. Like a traditional house. And then there's a, an offshoot that's like a round building. It's gate, completely gated, and on the front gates are the number 23, of course. Then, come on, stupid slideshow slide. This is what I hate about these. They make it, they let you think you're getting a, some kind of news article, and then, you know, there's a bunch of advertisements in the middle of the little slideshow. Uh, it's got a full-size tennis court, which I never knew he was into tennis. Maybe his wife and kids were or something. Um, it's just so spacious. And there's so much landscape. You would have to, on top of the $29 million or $14.5 million, whatever. Oh, it's got a, like a, Big old putting green that's um, got slopes to it. Doesn't have a sand trap with it, but it it's not a flat 
putting green. It's got angles and dimensions and hills to it. You know, because Michael Jordan liked the golf, but he liked the challenge too. So he had a, a sophisticated putting green there that he could practice his putts on. Uh, of course, the little flag that goes in the hole has the Air Jordan logo on it. Then there's like another lake or something, creek, I don't know. No, it's not flowing, so it's... Pardon me while I take a drink. But it's got like a, a moat around it or something. I need a new computer. Don't you hate that? When you do everything you can to take care of a, a laptop or a computer. And then it just hits a point where it's moving ridiculously slow. Everything it does is just slow. Alright, well, there goes your verbal virtual tour of Michael Jordan's house. Um... So Steak and Shake and other restaurant chains are announcing that certain restaurants in their chain are just not going to survive the coronavirus. Um, a lot of these were restaurants that were on the verge of closing anyways. So... Um, but the coronavirus has put them out of business. Um, you know, that that's one sad thing about this. I mean, these lockdown orders... You know, data poured in. And, yeah, your population centers like New York City, Los Angeles... Probably needed to be uh, under stricter lockdown orders than, say... Youngstown, Ohio, uh, even though per capita at one point, Youngstown was the hardest hit area in Ohio. Um, you know, that's just one of the, the sad things. Um, but, you know, some places didn't need to go under lockdown at all. And I saw firsthand that a lot of restaurants and bars were already hurting in the weeks leading up to these mandatory lockdown orders and closings. Uh, so anyhow, looks like the governor of Nevada has set June 4th for the date that casinos can reopen. Would be interesting to see, you know, I'm sure Nevada or Las Vegas has its own, you know, degenerate gamblers, but it's really a a, a tourist destination. So let's see what their their rules are: free parking, but no valet service. Bartenders, blackjack dealers, and waiters. Wearing masks and hand sanitizer everywhere. Yes, dice will roll and cards will be dealt and slot machines will beckon. But poker rooms are closed. 
Oh, that's why they mentioned blackjack dealers. Tourists returning to Las Vegas will see changes since gambling has stopped in mid-March for the first time ever uh, to stem the spread of the virus. The stakes will not be higher, said Robert Lang, executive director of Brookings Mountain West, the think tank at the University of Nevada. Las Vegas can never be known as a place where people go and get sick. <laughs> really? The, the hookers don't have diseases? Oh, okay. Uh, Nevada, I apologize to all hookers. Um, Nevada Governor Sis, Sisolak uh, set tentative date for the 4th. Democrat Governor said Friday... Nevada continued to see a decrease in cases of coronavirus and hospitalizations of COVID-19 when some restrictions began to be eased nearly two weeks ago. Well, that's good. The number of cases went down even though they uh, eased restrictions. Um, so many properties have aimed for early July restart in the gambling mecca Almost overnight in the middle of a hot streak. Three consecutive $1 billion months statewide casino winnings. This casino, the city, had been drawing more than 40 million annual visitors. Well, you know, now might be the time to go visit Las Vegas. Because I'm sure it's not going to just like... <clears throat> be, um... You know, it's not going to be, um... You know, it, it, all hell breaking loose. Um, so once given the green light, the marquees and the managers will welcome people back to 24-7 town built for crowds, excitement and access. But not every resort amenity will open. Nightclubs and Nightclubs, day clubs, a.k.a. strip clubs and strip clubs, uh, buffets, and large venues will remain closed. Cirque du Soleil shows will stay dark, at least for now. Signs everywhere remind guests of the new rules. Wash your hands. Keep your distance. Limit your elevator ride to your... Limit your elevator ride to your sanitized room to just four people. That's kind of good. Um, a lot of social distancing. Uh, Caesar's Palace. Dice will be disinfected between shooters. Chips will be cleaned periodically. Card decks will be changed frequently. At some resorts, guests will be encouraged to use cell phones. For touchless check-in and as room keys. That's pretty interesting. And to read restaurant menus. Win resort properties. And the Venetian owned by Las Vegas Sands. Plan to use thermal imaging cameras at every entrance. To intercept people with fevers. Yeah, that's a little... That's a little uh, unnerving, but it's like basically they're spying on you, checking your body temperature without you knowing it. Smaller operations in Las Vegas and Reno will offer hand sanitizer 
a gondola pilot wearing a face mask will be be on board to steer the vessel. Gondoliers stationed along the canal will serenade passengers from an appropriate distance. That, that sentence kind of came from out of nowhere. Um, so that's what's going on in Las Vegas. Las Vegas. There's something before that I wanted to read. These NFL players are true Iron Men, and it's got a picture of Brett Favre. I think Brett Favre is the biggest jerk in and in the NFL. You know, he hung around for so stinking long until he just couldn't go anymore. Uh, I mean, until his skills were just—I wouldn't say diminished. He could—he still had the arm. But he he hung in there, and like halfway through the season, he was just like unconscious. Like he was so diminished as a player. And, you know, it's hard for uh, sports icons to let go. They call it arena addiction. But, I mean... Come on, there's a point when you just got to hang it up. I mean, wait, there's a, see, that's what I was talking about with these darn, they make it look like it's a news article, and then when you get into it, commercials and crap start popping. Um, anyways, so this... Uh, Brett Favre, supposedly John Madden's favorite player of all time, and I don't believe that, but that's what that uh, Frank Caliendo jerk says. You know, that guy is like on, on my last nerve. His Frank Caliendo, the guy that does impressions of everyone, uh, he was, he, he's wore out his 15 minutes of fame with me. Um, but anyways, back to the jerk, Brett Favre. Um, not only did he stay past his prime, I mean, Green Bay fans were so in love with him that they really roasted um, their new hero, Aaron Rodgers. And I think that the Packers may have drafted Aaron Rodgers' replacement too. Uh, Aaron Rodgers is not going to end up in Las Vegas playing for the Raiders. But anyways, Aaron Rodgers is still a great quarterback and he's uh, hooking up with Danica Patrick. So props to Aaron, even though he's got a really creepy mustache. Um... But, you know, the fans loved Favre so much because he hung around the town. And he was great, but he hung out till he could break Dan Marino's record. Well, Dan Marino, you know, didn't hang on way past his prime. Uh, sadly, Dan Marino, probably one of the great quarterbacks of all time, but they could never give him 
a defense or a running game. If Dan Marino would have had a running back uh, so that, you know, they could call something other than a passing play. Uh, and as good as Don Shula was, uh, you, know, you know, the undefeated Dolphins were known for their quote-unquote no-name defense. And then also they were known for their bruising running backs like Larry Zonka. And why, you know, Don Shula was never able to gather up a defense that could help Dan Marino and was never able to, you know, get a good running back in there boggles my mind. But, you know, Marino threw 420 or some odd pass, touchdown passes or whatever it was, and Favre hung around till he could break that record. Well, then he hung on a few more years. But the thing that I don't like about the guy, you know, the Breast Cancer Awareness Month in the NFL basically came about because uh, of Brett Favre's wife being a breast cancer survivor. And that was like a big thing. And, you know, she promoted breast cancer awareness because her husband was, you know, the biggest quarterback in the NFL. Uh, he was like Tom Brady, but minus the Super Bowls, basically. You know, Brett Favre was, you know, the face. And then when he goes to, like, the New York Jets is when uh, cell phone cameras first came about. Cell phones with cameras. I mean, it was like a really new technology right then. It was like, what, late 90s, early 2000s? I don't know. But... Whenever he went to the Jets, he was sending pictures of him, his penis to uh, a female trainer on the Jets and trying to hook up with her. What a jerk. Your wife is a cancer survivor, uh, and you're trying to hook up with uh, the trainer for your new football team? You know, what an asshole. So I, don't, I can't stand Brett Favre. I'm so sick of everybody acting like he was the greatest. Uh, you know, he was no Joe Montana. He was not even Steve Young. Uh, I mean, if Rich Gannon would have won that Super Bowl with the Raiders, he would have been just as good as Brett Favre. I mean, you know, uh, he might not have had the touchdown passes, but for... That couple of years that the Raiders were good, Rich Gannon was the top quarterback in the NFL. Uh, you know, above Brett Favre even. So, I'm getting my five-minute warning, but let's end on a good note. Courtney Cox, I always had a, a crush on her from... The Dancing in the Dark Days with Bruce Springsteen. She was the girl, random girl from the audience that he pulled up on stage. And then she was Michael J. Fox's girlfriend on Family Ties. And uh, even now, she's, gosh, she's got to be over 50 at least. Uh, whatever.
Whoop, and somehow I, my computer jumped me to a Mike Trout uh, article. Well, anyways, there was a 13-year-old super fan of the TV show Friends who was obviously watching it in reruns. By the way, a Mike Trout rookie baseball card that's autographed sold for uh, $1 million. I don't know who the hell Mike Trout is or why somebody would think his autograph's worth $13 million or $1 million. But let's see if we can get to this. All right, so here goes. England, who was scheduled to have his bar mitzvah, but when lockdown was put in place, his family decided to stage a virtual bar mitzvah instead, and this was a big deal for several reasons. One, according to the rabbi, it was the first ever virtual bar mitzvah, and two, the theme of the bar mitzvah was the TV show Friends. Take a look. This is the first ever online bar mitzvah. I'm a big fan of the TV show Friends, which is why my invites and the big friends theme. I've come to visit a realization. The lyrics of Friends theme tune starts with the words, so no one told you life was going to be this way. But the chorus of that song has the much more uplifting line, I'll be there for you, like you're there for me too. So Naftali didn't get to have his party, but after the virtual bar mitzvah went live, not only did everyone in Naftali's family get to see it, it was also viewed by thousands and thousands of other people. Now, Naftali is so obsessed with Friends, that had he been able to have his big party, the Friends theme was going to include a red sofa photo opportunity. Each table was going to be named after a different character, and they were going to rent a foosball table, just like the one in Chandler and Joey's apartment. And take a look at Naftali's invitation. Okay, now, as a fellow Friends fanatic, I knew I wanted to talk to him about this, so we've got him here with us tonight. Naftali, how are you? How are you doing? Family, family, and just a few friends, but... Like, what is it? It's really funny. All right. Well, look, Trying much to... as I do, and well, we thought you're here, and well, a friend of mine was also impressed. Here comes Courtney Cox. Bar mitzvah, and she wanted to pop in and say hi too. All right, she shut up. Dialing in right about now. Hi there. Oh my gosh, hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm very good, how are you? Good. Do you recognize me? I do. Well, you should because Natalie, tell tell Courtney how many times you've watched Friends. I watched it seven times. Seven times, the whole series, seven times. Yeah, that's I'm incredible. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely amazing. And well, when we talk, all right, I got fifty-seven seconds to wrap this up. Uh, I'm a big Friends fan, also. But I liked it better when, uh, before it became like a mega hit show, when it was kind of like, you know, my personal show, and um, there were just a few of us that watched it regularly. Uh, but yeah, I one time, as a high school kid, wrote Courtney Cox a fan letter, and uh, she sent me an autographed picture. So that's kind of cool. I have something in, in common with Neftali. Um, so anyways, well, Courtney Cox didn't, you know, visit me virtually on my birthday, but whatever. Hey, goodbye. God bless you guys. Pray for one another. 
and have a great night.